everyone, everybody, stay on your feet. We have a very special guest with us this evening. His name is Jesse Eisenhart. It is his first time preaching with us in the Dominion Theater. And I'm excited for it. He comes from South New Jersey. Anybody from New Jersey? Anybody from New Jersey? You are not from New Jersey, Billy. <laughs> South New Jersey. Pastors a, a phenomenal church there called True North Church, a multi-site church much like our own. He started it with his family and took over from his dad in 2015. He's been running a phenomenal church there, having a great impact on the community. Come on, let's give him a big Hillsong welcome. Say, welcome to Jesse Eisenhart. Hey, how many of you are grateful for Jesus? You grateful for Jesus? For the love of Jesus? Come on. Hey, listen, do me a favor. Stretch your hands to heaven. I want to pray for you in a moment. I want to pray that, that you would feel that this, this love that transcends shame and guilt. It transcends and bridges the gap between our brokenness and His healing. And I just want us to experience something supernatural tonight. You with me? You want to experience something? Hey, come on, let's just pray. God, I thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Father, I pray tonight that you would, you would do something that, that we could not do on our own. God, do what only you can do in our midst. Begin to work in our heart. Father, we know that you draw all men unto yourself. So do something supernatural in this place. In your precious and holy name we pray. And a faith-filled church said, come on. Hey, you can have a seat. Tell the person next to you you're glad to be sitting next to them. And now tell the other one that you ignored, you're glad to be sitting next to them too. It would be remiss of me not to mention the fact that your house, the house of Hillsong has impacted not only the globe, but it has impacted our church and our family and my life in a way that quite fr frankly is difficult to describe. I, I can't explain it. It is a house of authenticity, a house of generosity. Um, and a house of worship. Can you say amen to that? And um, uh, you are in a good place. Anyone grateful for their church tonight and grateful for God in the church? Um, I, I pastor a church, and it is one of the greatest joys of my life. I was married just almost seven years ago, and uh, I have three wonderful kids. And uh, Harper, she is six. Avi, Grace, she is four. And my son, Levi, he is three. And uh, how many here tonight are a work in progress? And you're not afraid to admit it. <laughs> and everyone else, you, you are too, but you just don't want to admit it. And uh, I'm a work in progress. I really am. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of that. I, I'm from a big family. I'm one of eight children. And my father's one of 11. And my mother's one of five. My father and mother have 25 grandkids in the, um, in the, in the church right now. And uh, listen, we took Be Fruitful and Multiply very serious. It's the first command God gives to humanity. And, uh, and we just, we're obedient people, okay, in New Jersey. And and I, I, I'm a work in progress. And one of the things I've really been working on is my, my parenting. I want to be a good father. And the problem is, is that my children are like I was. And um, the truth be told, putting all the cards on the table, I, I was a very problematic child. I, I struggled in school. I was, um, well, I was sent home a lot in school and uh, told that I, I could not be in the classroom. I was too disruptive and distracting. And and thank the Lord that my children are not completely like that, but they're strong-willed, like their father and like their mother. And my, mo and, and, and my mother, every time she comes over, she gives a good laugh. She sees my kids, and they're just going crazy, and she just laughs. I say, you can't keep doing that. 
That's not cool anymore when you come over and just laugh. She goes, it's all coming back full circle. And now you are reaping what you sowed. And, um, and, and my wife, just a few weeks ago, um, or no, this was over a year ago, she uh, said, listen, I'm going out. Uh, I watched the kids, and she was getting ready, and, and I took my son into the pool area. There's a fence around our pool. We had just moved into the home, and, and uh, my son was playing by the pool, and I love my son. He has this really deep voice, and uh, so we were by the pool, and I was like, Levi, back up, and he's like, I'm fine, Dad, and I'm like, no, you're not, buddy. He's two. I'm like, back up, and then he gets real like Sean. He goes, Dad, I'm fine, and I'm like, <laughs> you're awesome, man, but you know you're not fine. You can't swim, and, and so I'm working on the other side of the pool, and, and I turn around and I literally don't hear nothing, but when I turn back around, he had fallen in. He had seen something and he has a big head like his dad and he was moving his feet back, but his head stayed in the same spot and he had just fallen in. And so I jump in the pool and I get him and I get, by the time I got to him, he's at the bottom. I pull him up, I sit him on the edge, snots everywhere, he's going crazy, he's crying and he looks at me square in the face and said, Dad, I drowned. And I said, no, 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 you didn't drown. You did not drown. Don't, don't, son, don't say that word. You didn't drown. My oldest daughter walks outside. She's the most dramatic of everyone. And she walks out. She goes, oh my God, what happened? What happened? Why are you wet? Why are your clothes all soaking wet? Dad, what happened? What happened? And my son goes, I drowned. And I'm like, no, no, he didn't drown. She doesn't even hesitate. She turned around, sprints inside. My wife's getting ready to leave, to go out to leave me with the kids for a few hours. And she, she comes running out because Harper runs inside and goes, Levi drowned, Levi drowned. She comes running out. What's wrong? What's wrong? And Levi, and I was like, nothing. We're fine. We're fine. I'm soaking wet. I have like a collared shirt on. I'm soaking wet. Levi chimes. She goes, mom, I drowned. And I was like, he didn't drown. He's, he's alive. And she's like, why is he in the pool area? He doesn't have his swimming zone. I'm like, he said he wanted to come in. She's like, he's three. And I'm like, it's a good point. It's a good point. I probably shouldn't have done that. I'm a work in progress. I really am. And, and my oldest daughter, uh, who's six, was in kindergarten uh, last year. She's going into first grade. And, and we were welcomed to the classroom to, to see all the fun activities that kindergartners do. It was terrible. And, and I remember being in that environment and, and putting on the face, oh, I'm so proud. What is that that you drew and everyone loves? I don't know, but everyone's happy about it. I'm, I'm confused. But, and so I was just happy walking around. And the craziest thing happened. The teacher, her teacher uh, said, hey, everyone get in line. Uh, come on, children, everyone get in line. And it's the strangest thing. All of a sudden, my heart started racing. I started breathing like heavy. And my wife looks at me. She's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm getting anxious. She goes, about what? I was like, I don't know. I was getting anxious. And I thought like I was just like being weird. And I have this watch. And I'm like, no, nope, my heart's definitely beating really fast right now. And she's like, what? Are we going to have like a counseling moment right now? Like what's happening? And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I realized that was like my trigger word when I was in school. Get in line. Get in line. Because it was in the line that I could never follow. I could never follow instructions in line. He just say, get in line. I'd, and I just start moving like this. And my dad's like, oh, God. <laughs> no. And, and I remember I was in first grade. And, and the teacher wrote this note home to my mother. And they're like, we need to have a conversation with you and your son. And, and the school nurse. School nurse. I was like, what are these school nurses for? And they're like, your son needs to be on medication. And my mother's like, no, no, no. All of my kids are like that. <laughs> you know I mean? And he's just, and I was always sort of special growing up. And, and, and so, no, he's just special. And I was like, yeah, I'm special. And, you know, I was like real passionate about it. No, I'm special. And they're like, you're so special. You need to be on medication. I was like, no, I'm not taking medication. I just don't like lines. Why? And this was my, this was my thing with lines. Why do I need to follow? Like, it would freak me out. I'd stand in the line, and, and the teacher would go, all right, get in line, we're standing against the wall. I'm like, why are we standing here? There's no one in front of anyone. Just move, keep going. Why are we standing here? Like, Jesse, just, these are the rules. This is what you do. You stand in line. I was like, I don't like standing in line. 
don't like standing in line. We're on our way here, and I'm with um, one of the youth pastors who came with me, traveled with me, and, and uh, we get in this line. I could not see the end of it. We spent five minutes walking to the end of the line, and my heart starts racing again. I was like, hey, we, we, have, to, um, we have to find another line. He's like, uh, Pastor, there's not another line. I was like, no, by the grace of God, we will find another line. <laughs> and so I send him up to the front. I said, find another line. I see him walking back, and I'm just going like this. And he's like, so I get out of line and walk to him. I said, did you find another line? He's like, no. I was like, we'll find another line. And I just started walking. We got down to the lady, and by the grace of God, we found another line. And it was much shorter. And I don't know what it is, and I've realized something. That that environment was a, an environment of following, but it was a forced following. You had no choice. You were to get in line, shut your mouth. Well, for me, I struggle with that too. But it'd be, get in line and just follow. And then the reason I'm bringing that up is because I recall the moments of being in church for the first time and hearing the word follower. It was like my trigger word, you know. And I realized that in the church dynamic, we call, Christ calls us to freely follow. Freely follow. Not following by force. In that environment, I was almost forcibly called to follow. But in the house of God, we freely follow Jesus. Some of you need to tell somebody, like, you're not being made to follow. <laughs> You've ever been in church and you see some people like, why are you so angry? You know what I mean? No one's making you do this. <laughs> I say this often to our church, and it's not very popular to say, but I always say this to our church. It's like, why are you here? What are you doing? And I can tell when I say that, and I, like the young kids look at their parents, they're like, yeah, why am I here, dad? <laughs> and then the dad looks back and he's like, because you live in my house. That's why you're here. <laughs> why are you here? And this is, a, this is the important thing is because you need to resolve who God is. You got to get to the point in your life, who, who is God to me? Do I need God? And I remember, for me, it was, it was, a, bit, <laughs> it was a bit strange because I grew up in a charismatic church and there was just basically just means crazy things happen in church all the time. And then get hit in the face with a ribbon, there's dancers, you know, people doing backflips on the world. So it was just common. And I remember being at like eight, between eight and 10 and, and there was this performance that was coming through the church and it was called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And um, it, it was <laughs> quite intense. And I remember being like eight or nine years old and struggling to pay attention and focus and being all over the place. I couldn't sit still. And I remember this being kind of captivated by the production of what was happening on stage, a stage relative to this size. And on one side of the stage, there was like this, this picture of heaven and these, these little cherubim and, you know, clouds. And it was beautiful, white and sparkly. And the other side was dark and there was, you know, smoke coming out. It was red. It was just, you know, representing of hell. Okay. And I remember sitting there kind of, this is weird. Like, what's going to happen? And then all of a sudden there were these scenes represented and the people in the scenes would die. And I'm like, this is dark. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden in the scenes, if there was a family there and they would all die, some of them would get taken to heaven. And then all of a sudden these People dressed like demons would run out of what was hell, grab the people who were not saved, and drag them off the stage screaming away from their parents. Exactly. <laughs> and I remember almost wetting myself in the back of the church. And when they did an altar call, they didn't even need to begin. And they're like, does anyone need you? Literally the whole place plummeted to the front of the thing. And that was me. I came to the front and they're like, why are you here? I'm like, I don't want to go to hell. And they're like, great choice, son. Great choice. Great choice. And that's how I began my need of Jesus. They say, why do you need Jesus? Can I tell you something? It's really hard. It's really hard to receive something if you don't think you're in need of it. 
And listen, a lot of times when I meet people, they say, I don't need God. I don't need God. I'm all right where I am. And I go, well, no, no, you need God. They started to talk about sin and all those understandings. And for me, it was easy because I understood in church life that sin separates us from God. Sin basically creates a barrier between us and God. Sin separates. Other people would describe it this way, that sin is simply missing the mark. And missing the mark creates this, it's, it's problematic. But one of the things I recognize, if, if there is no mark to miss, you never know that you're missing the mark. And for me, being in church, I've recognized that God calls us to a certain way to follow him, but you, it begins by recognizing you're in need of him. I haven't shared this all week. I think someone needs to hear it, and this is what I'm going to share it with you. I remember thinking this myself. I was witnessing to somebody, and I remember being in kids' church singing the song, um, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. Did anyone know that parable, that passage of scripture? The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. We used to sing the songs with it, and I don't remember because there was hand motions that you could actually punch your neighbor with, and I remember doing all that stuff, and don't judge me. Some of you are judging me right now, and, um, and I remember that, but I remember going to seminary and learning that there was a representation of water. Water in the New Testament was a representation of refreshing and anointing the Spirit of God, blessings, and every time I would read that passage that a wise man would build his house upon the rocks, the foolish man would build his house upon the sand. And what I was talking about was the formation of your identity. And what I always read that parable before I understood the representation of rain, I always looked at it as storm and rain, or rain being a detriment, a problem. Which in scripture it says that rain is recorded and represented as a blessing. Sometimes there is blessing in your life that you seem to see God as an affirmation of your direction and pursuit, and you're building your foundation based upon your acumen and based upon the success that you've achieved because you're living in blessing, and your identity is wrapped up in what you've acquired in your own strength. <laughs> and that's someone who builds their house upon the sand. Scripture clearly points out to us that as we pursue God, as we pursue God, we're made aware more frequently of our brokenness, of our need of him. I remember preaching one time at youth and I was really having, having a bit of a go and I was really in, into this preach and, and all of a sudden I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me. That seemed completely irrelevant to what I was preaching. I was a little disappointed too because I really wanted, you know, it seemed to be distracting more than anything. But I remember the Holy Spirit saying, no, the same God is in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. They're not different gods. And I remember having this argument in my mind as I'm preaching, and I'm not that good to kind of thinking things in one direction, let alone two. But I remember saying to myself, no, I know that. He said, no, you're preaching one God as grace and the other God as justice. The other God, is it's the same God. And then all of a sudden, as I began to study, I realized something. That Jesus says that I've come not to abolish the law, mean do away with the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. So if you can't get rid of the law, what good is the law? What good is it? Well, I'll tell you what good it is. It provides us a path of knowing our need of God. That we need God. Because if we have no mark to miss, we don't know what direction to go. And so the law of God really points us into a place of saying we need God. And for me, I have to be honest, when my journey began with the Lord, I recognized my need of him. And some of you are here tonight, and maybe you're in a position, you're like, I don't need God, I'm all right. My friend, you need Jesus. And this is why. Because though you look through things through the lens of your own brokenness and through the lens of this physical world we live in, we, we are spiritual beings. 
and we will spend eternity somewhere. And that sin that you inherited throughout all humanity is the very thing that will separate you from eternity with God. And the only way that we can spend eternity with God is if we receive Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. That's the only way that happens. And I was in church my whole life, and I could quote to you the Roman road through Romans chapter 3, verse 6 through 10. For the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None are righteous, not even one. I could go through it all. And I recognized my need of God, but I only thought I needed God in the area of salvation. <laughs> and it distorts things. Can I just tell you, this is why it's so important. It's because the way in which you see God will determine how you follow him. <laughs> if you don't get anything tonight, just know this. The way you see God will determine how you follow him. And all of us in here, those who are passionately desiring to pursue Jesus, the real end goal is to just see him. Just see Jesus. Because when we see him, the Bible says when we see him in the fullness of his glory, we shall be changed. Completely made whole. So our pursuit of him is seen through the disciplines laid out in scripture. But I remember as I was navigating through this season of my life and determining like, do I really need God? Okay, I need God in the area of my salvation. And every time I came to church, I started to recognize that the church became like the law. Scripture says that the law became a tutor. It teaches us our ways that are apart from God. And I remember walking into church at times and walking in and thinking, this is before I was involved in anything at church. I was kind of doing my own thing, playing college football, wrestling in college, doing whatever I wanted to do. And I remember walking in and every time I walked into church, I would, be, I would have like this stink face on and I'd sit like this. <laughs> and this is what I did every time I walked in. You know what I did immediately when I walked in? I judged people, judged people. I said, look at that person. I'm jumping up and down and worship, think they're better than everybody. You know what I mean? Look at that person. They oh, look at them. They're crying. They think that God really, you know what I mean? I was so judgmental. I just judge people. I just judge people. And this is what would happen. I would look at other people and say, oh, I'm better than them. You know what? That creates self-righteousness, which the byproduct of self-righteousness is pride. God can do nothing with pride. And the only way you stand in self-righteousness is by you looking at other people and comparing yourself to them. But there's another side of it which is self-condemnation. So though at times I walked into church and I looked at other people and said, I'm better than them, I would walk in many times like this and quietly, because I would never tell anyone that I looked around the people and said, there's a lot of people in here that are better than me. And I'd walk out feeling worse than I came in. And I just felt condemned. And can I tell you something? For many of us, if we don't formulate our identity in Christ, we'll begin to develop it based on the judgment of how we see other people. There's a reason James says in chapter 2 that mercy triumphs over judgment. You know why? Judgment is the, is the currency of our broken humanity. Do you know something? You have an automated process in the brokenness of your humanity that when you see people, you judge them. I don't care if you're in high school, in college. I don't care where you are in the season of your life. You'll begin to evaluate. Someone gets blessed in your world. You'll have an excuse and a reason why they got blessed. Someone actually gets promoted. Someone is better. Someone does this. Someone does that. You'll have a reason or an excuse to, to do what? To protect you in your area of self-condemnation or to keep you in your position of self-righteousness. The only way you maintain that identity is if you continually and perpetually judge yourself against other people. That's the only way you stay in that place. But Christ, the scriptures declare that mercy triumphs over judgment. And I love that because the currency of Christ is grace and mercy. 
it is not judgment, condemnation, and self-righteousness. Amen? It's completely different. It's completely different. <laughs> I, remember, I, I, I remember thinking about this. And I, I said, man, God, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I said, I go into other churches. And, and at times when we, when we first started, before I really found this sense of security in Christ, I would walk into other places and look around and say, wow, oh, they think they're better. This church thinks they're better. And you know what it does? It deteriorates your identity in Christ. Yeah. It deteriorates it. Do you know what the number one fear of humanity is? Number one fear is what I'm doing right now, public speaking. It's a greater fear of humanity than death. Isn't it crazy? You say, really? Is that possible? Yeah. Do you know why? Because standing on a platform exposes you to a place of judgment. And none of us, none of us want to be in a position to be judged. We're frightened of it. But yet we do it all the time. <laughs> and it pushes us to a place of seeing ourselves. And this is problematic. Because most of us pursue Jesus in our own brokenness. If you're dealing with self-condemnation and you pursue Jesus, everything that you do is to kind of earn his love and earn his, his admiration and his grace and his peace and his mercy. It's like, oh, I got to do this. I got to be in here. I got to do that. I got to do this. I got to do all these things. And all of it is to kind of earn that understanding of, oh, God, I want you to love me. I remember thinking this one time, saying to myself, man, I want to love people more. I, wanna, I, want, I don't want to be like every other person in New Jersey. No, I'm just kidding. We love people a lot. And, and, and uh, it's Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's anything but that, but we soon love it. And, um, and I, I, rem I remember saying, I just want to love people more. And, and my response in my self-condemnation was, God, I need more love to give out. I need to give more love. So the only way that I can give more love is if you give me more love. And then I started to flip through the scriptures and I realized something that scripture actually says that you and I only have the capacity to love other people because he first loved us. Yeah. And so then I began to make the, the, the question, the next question I asked, well, okay, if I'm deficient in love, then surely that means that God needs to just turn the dial up a little bit more so he maximizes the love so that I can display more love to other people. But the problem with that is that God has already maximized all the love that he has towards humanity. The Bible says that God demonstrated his love towards us that while we were yet still sinners, someone went to the cross and died for you and his name is Jesus. It's the greatest act and demonstration of love. So what's the problem in this? The problem is not on his lack or incapacity to demonstrate love. It's within our own brokenness that we cannot see it. And so all of it in this journey of following Jesus, how do we follow him? The Bible lays out clearly that there are disciplines in scripture. Anytime you hear that word, for me, that was the word that meant run. You know what I mean? Disciplines. Scripture actually says in Proverbs... You know, I'm trying to be a better parent. And uh, it says that, that parents who avoid discipline with their children, this is the language it uses. It says you hate them. You hate them. And that's not in like just the message translation. That's like everything. That's like the original thing. Like, so like, is that just a message? No, no, no. That's the original text in there. That you hate them. Do you know why? Because there's... Positions of authority and truth that lead people into a place of righteousness. 
And when you abandon the role and the structure that God has instructed you to be in the dynamic of the family, you basically allow them to just do whatever they want. And if you want to see the byproduct of what happens when humanity does whatever they want, read the book of Judges and go to the last few chapters and find out what happens. And you begin to see the deterioration of a society. And at the end of each one of those stories, you'll read something in the scriptures and, it'll, and it will say this. And this is what happens when everyone does as they see fit in their own eyes. Do you know what that really means? I don't need God. I don't need God. Disciplines are important. Reading the word of God. Praying. Meditating on scripture. Fasting. That's a fun one. Fasting. And um, never love that. Uh, tithing. Struggle with that for a while. Um, biblical community. Don't like sitting around other people that I really don't like. You know what I mean? So I, that wasn't really that good. I struggle with my attention. So I would read like four verses and then just lose it. And then praying, I would pray. And then I'd start looking around the room and say, God, thank you for the lamp. And uh, thank you for the, and um, I'm not kidding you. Okay. And then I, I remember everything was so hard. It was so hard to do. And I was like, man, this Christian thing, this is like, really, this is, this is hard. Like, I don't know how to do it. And then I realized something. My focus has not been on Jesus. My focus has been on being a better version of me. Listen, your attempt to be a better you will never draw you nearer to Jesus. Scripture says that he needs to become, that we need to fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. We get so messed up. People come into the church and say, my marriage is deteriorating. And we pray, listen, fix your eyes on Jesus. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean? If you boil it all down, what we really long to see, to, 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 to experience is just to see Jesus, is to see him. And how do we see him? We see him through the written word of God. We see him in prayer. We see him in all those things. Isn't it interesting that God draws us to himself, often in times of our greatest need? Some of you are here tonight, and you're experiencing the greatest pain you've ever experienced. And you're coming to the house of God. And you don't typically come. But you're here tonight because everything in your life is out of control. And I need you to know something. That God's not going to give you control. He's asking you to surrender it. And it is only when you surrender control that you walk in a greater confidence. Because you are not in control and in command of your life. That's how following Jesus works. Amen. Man, it's so easy to say, but it's challenging to do. But I do know one thing, that the moment I stopped focusing on the disciplines and started to focus on Jesus, every time I would kneel down, it wasn't like, well, I'm doing this because I need to. No, every time I kneeled down, it wasn't like, God, look what I'm doing for you. This was like, God, this is my confession. I need you if I don't pray. God, this is my confession. I need you if the word isn't in my life. God, this is my confession. If I'm not in biblical community, I'm going to be jacked up. My life is not going to turn out the way it is. God, I need you in my finances. That's why I bring it back to you. When that conviction resides within you, you can't be talked out of it. You can't be talked out of it. People, people wonder often why people are so committed to the house of God. It's because they've seen Jesus. I've seen people go through areas of struggle in their life, and I've watched people overcome and defeat cancer, and I've watched people go, go home to be with the Lord. And it's been one of the most difficult seasons for me to watch people leave that were so connected and vital into the house. And 
And I watch those whose trusts are so strong in the Lord and it changes you inside. And can I tell you something in conversation with people who are dying from cancer, but they've surrendered everything to God. They, they, they look at me in the eyes and say, I never need to be told to pray. <laughs> no one ever has to remind me. I don't need to set a reminder on my phone. I don't need to set a reminder to be in group. I don't need to set a reminder to read the, the word of God. And I say, why? And they say, because I need it. Ask yourself, if you're not at a place where you can say to God, God, I need you, it means that you are still the ruler of that area in your life and you've never surrendered it to God. It's hard, isn't it? I love this because <laughs> it's in our brokenness that we can't figure this out because we don't operate in this currency. We, we don't know how it looks. Christ is saying, follow me and surrender all things. You know what he said? He said to the Pharisees, he says, because you say you see, you are blind. Now, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I had to read it like 48 times. I'm like, what is he really talking about here? And you know, like he who has ears, let him hear. You don't hear. If you're blind, you do see. You don't see. I'm saying like, oh man, this is not for me. I just don't understand this. And then, and then I remember reading, because you say you see, God, I don't need you to see. And Christ says, because you say you don't need me, you're blind. And our life's pursuit, and it boils down to us recognizing, no, I need God in this area of my life. There's this passage in, 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 the, in the Gospel of John, and it's in chapter 8, and I think it, it puts all this into perspective in a, in a brilliant picture. And I think some of you need to know that as you pursue Jesus and you're passionately pursuing him, there's going to be bumps along the way. And I don't think you'll ever talk to someone who's serving the Lord and say, oh, no, it's all just easy. The truth is it's hard. And in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus says that. I wish someone would have told me that early on, but he declares this. In this world, you will have trouble. But then he follows up with this. He says, but take heart. Why? For I have overcome the world. And it's understanding that you will not accomplish it in your own strength and in your own control. It only comes at the point of surrendering it to Jesus. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in an interesting situation. And I love this passage of scripture because it represents what we're talking about tonight so brilliantly. And it begins like this. It says, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. That's so awesome. And, uh, and when, he, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. I love this picture. I read this story many times before. 
The Bible declares that this is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It is always able to teach you and to equip you and to train you in the ways that you should walk and follow. And when I read this at one time, I'll never, I'll never forget the moment I was reading this and I realized this story isn't even about the woman. It's about the response of Jesus to both of them. Self-righteousness. Listen, self-righteousness only finds its righteousness in comparing itself to the brokenness of people around them. But pride is blind. Have you ever talked to someone who deals with pride and you try to point it out and they're like, no, I'm fine. Because it's blind to itself. It cannot see itself. And here these people with self-righteousness come before Jesus. And the only way they bring this woman is because they're thinking into themselves. Surely I'm better than this one who is being brought before Jesus. And they walk in, not even realizing that they've already condemned themselves. <laughs> and the woman walks in self-condemned and she's standing there before Jesus. And I cannot imagine the guilt and the shame that this woman had to experience. And Jesus isn't like overwhelmed by it. Pens down. And he speaks of self-righteousness. The only reason someone can be self-righteous is because they are not comparing themselves to the perfection of Jesus. The moment they compare themselves to the perfection of Jesus, they have no identity to stand on. And they're lost. So Jesus bends down. And he puts all the cards out. And he says, okay. If you are so righteous, then those who are without sin condemn first. They walk away. He says self-righteousness cannot be stood on as a foundation of identity. But you notice he didn't say anything about doing away with the law. Jesus is the essence and the fullness of grace and mercy. And when he walks into this scene, he brings a new representation, not of judgment, but of grace and mercy. Grace gives humanity what it does not deserve. And mercy withholds, withholds the thing that we deserve, which is death because of our sin. And in this moment, this woman deserved death. Why? Because of her, because of her sin. And Jesus deals with the self-righteous, and here it is, the self-condemned. And I'm sure she could hear the feet walking away until there was no one left. It was just her and it was Jesus. Just in this silence and Jesus is there. He's drawing in the sand, waiting for the last person to realize that they themselves are broken and they cannot condemn anyone else. <laughs> the irony in all of this is they were standing before the only person that had the right to judge them. And instead of judging them, he extends mercy to her. And he says this thing. He says, does anyone judge you? I can only imagine she was probably looking around saying, surely someone is here to judge me. I mean, I was just caught, humiliated in public, judged by everyone. Surely someone is here. And she stands up. I can only imagine looking around saying, no one is here. And Jesus says, is anyone here to judge you? And she says, no. And he says, I don't either. But then he says something startling to her. Did you pick it up at the end? And as he sends her off in this mercy, he says to her something that seems almost unattainable. He says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And I remember reading that feeling overwhelmed at times saying, God, I, I can't believe you called me and chose me to do things. And your grace and your mercy is overwhelming. In church, 
Grace is a term that's used often. But I can tell you sometimes that, well, I, I suppose it's with all expressions of understanding grace. If you don't understand grace in light of what the results and ramifications are because of sin, you won't see the grace that God intended in a way that God intended you to see it. I can tell you one thing. This woman standing before Jesus, knowing that her sin was worthy of death, but she did not receive death. She received grace and mercy from God. Do you know what her perception of grace and mercy was? It was the very thing that enabled her to do what Christ commanded her to do when he says, go and sin no more. Do you know how we don't sin and we walk in honor before God? Of course we're going to fall. Of course there's gonna be times of brokenness. Of course there's gonna be seasons where we miss the mark and we're far from God. But in his grace and in his mercy, he welcomes us back right where we are. He's faithful to forgive. He constantly calls us to himself and calls us to greater things from glory to glory, from new seasons to new seasons. Even in the high points and the low points, Jesus is there. He's not trying to hide from you. He's not trying to be hard to find. He's not trying to play hard to get. He's right before you. But sometimes in the brokenness of our own sin, we can't see him. We just can't see him. He's standing right there before you saying, here I am, choose me. We got all these things going through our heads saying, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to surrender. I don't know if I'm ready to give up. I don't know if I'm ready to, to surrender things to Jesus. My friend, I'm telling you, we're created to do life with Jesus. You're created, purposed by God. The word of God says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made, that he knew you before you were formed in the womb of your mother. You're not an accident. You were designed on purpose for a purpose. That God loves you in all of that expression. Sometimes we get overwhelmed. Some of you are going to begin your journey with Jesus tonight. Some of you are in the midst of your journey with Jesus. And can I tell you, in all things, just focus upon him. Revelation simply means in the Latin derivative, revela, to remove the veil, to remove the veil, to see Jesus. When he died on that cross and that, that curtain was torn, the temple was revealed, the Holy of Holies, it was as if God was saying, I want to reveal my son to all humanity so you can see who he really is. I wanna pray for some of you tonight. Can you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let me pray for you right now. Some of you are here tonight and you're far from God. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus, but tonight's your night. Tonight's your night to walk in a new grace, in a new mercy, not to see yourself in self-righteousness and pride and not to see yourself as self-condemned, but to see yourself as a child of God, an heir to the throne, highly favored, chosen and set apart. And how do we do that? Not in our own works. We can't earn it, we can't purchase salvation, we can't work towards it, we need to come to God as we are. So tonight I wanna to lead you in a simple prayer. It's simple, but it's significant. It's significant because it's the greatest prayer you'll pray on this side of eternity. The prayer to say, God, I wanna receive your son Jesus as my Lord and Savior. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I wanna say this prayer, we're all gonna say it together. If you're saying it for the first time, believe it in your heart. The Bible declares in Romans 10, 9 that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Church, will you help me lead people to Jesus tonight? Repeat this prayer after me. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I receive your son Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. I believe he died on the cross and was raised to life. I am now a Christian. Christ now lives in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, give God a shout of praise tonight. Come on.